So we've reached the end of our series on the undomesticated attributes of God, and next week we're going to begin our new series in the book of Psalms, looking at Psalms 25 to 37. But today we're going to close out this series by looking at God's love, his wisdom, and his justice. God is love, Scripture tells us. God is wise. God is just And we see these three attributes of God converge at the cross. In his wisdom, God determined that Jesus would die for sinners to satisfy his justice. And Jesus' death then is the full expression of God's love. But it's important to know this about God's love. Jesus did not die in order to make God love us. Jesus died because God loves us. His death did not activate love in God. God's love activated, if you will, the cross. God's love for sinners is what caused the cross to happen. Okay, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, a passage you're very familiar with, I'm sure. We're going to use the closing of this wonderful chapter as our guide today. And this sermon will not be a full-blown exposition or exegesis of this passage. We're just going to kind of skim the waters today. And what we'll see as we look at these attributes of God is something that Jack Miller said. He said, cheer up. You're far more sinful than you could ever imagine. Cheer up. You're far more loved than you could ever dream. Jack Miller was a pastor, seminary professor, and a missionary. He said this phrase in various ways. Cheer up. You're a lot worse off than you think you are. But in Jesus, you are far more loved than you could ever imagine. And all of theology can be summed up in two sentences. Cheer up. You are worse than you think. And cheer up. God loves you more than you know. The bad news is that we are far worse than we could ever imagine. We could put all of our collective minds together and try to think about how bad we are because of Adam's sin, and we would barely scratch the surface. In fact, I believe our sinfulness actually keeps us from truly understanding just how sinful we are. But the good news is that God is far better and more loving than we could ever hope or we could ever imagine. And we could try to put our collective brains together and imagine how good and loving God is and we would barely scratch the surface. He is gracious and merciful and loving. He's better than we could ever hope or imagine. His goodness far exceeds any thoughts that we could ever conjure up. And that's why Jesus sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts, so that we would know just how much God loves us, as Paul says in Romans 5.5. But are we really bad? Because, you know, people push back against that. The world obviously does. Unbelievers do. But some Christians really push back. Are we really bad? Yeah, we are. We're really bad. How bad? Well, here's how bad we are. Alistair Begg said this, Our sin must be absolutely horrendous if it takes the death of God's only son to fix it. That's how bad we are. Only Jesus' death 
can fix us. And if that doesn't convince you, then I don't know what will. But here's something else that's amazing. J.I. Packer said, There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me. Isn't that a relief? That God loves you and he knows the worst things about you? He knew how bad you would be and he still sent Jesus to live and die for you. And that's why you can cheer up today because he knows all of your dirty secrets and he still loves you. It's amazing. It's amazing because some of y'all are really bad. I'm really bad too, by the way. Some of you were like, he just said I was bad. I did, but I'm bad too. Okay, Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. Hear the word of the Lord. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? So Paul asks some very important life questions here, and they all interrelate to God's undomesticated attributes that we're going to be looking at today. Paul begins by asking that if God is for us, who can really be against us? If the eternal, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, omnisapient, immutable God is for us, who can be against us? Who in our world, who in our culture can be against us? Duh, the answer is no one. If God has our back, even death is a pathetic loser. By the way, the word omnisapient that I just used means that God is all wise. The Latin is omni, which means all, and sapiens, which means wise. God is all wise. And so Paul asks if this eternal, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, omnisapient, immutable God gave up his own son for our sins on the cross, then won't he give us everything that we could ever need? And the answer is obviously a resounding yes. He will give us everything that we ever need. He gave us Jesus. He's not going to shortchange us elsewhere. But Paul then asks, Who can bring any sort of charge against God's elect people? What charge or accusation from Satan, our accuser, accuser, can stick? None. Paul started this chapter, you know, in Romans 8.1 by saying, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But who tries to condemn us? Who accuses us? Satan does. Who tries to condemn us before God? The devil does. But do any of his accusations stick? Nope. Why? Because God justifies, Paul says. Because God, the omnipotent, all-powerful, all-wise, all-seeing, holy, glorious God of the universe, 
He declares sinners as righteous. And the reason why a holy and glorious God can declare sinners like you and me righteous is because in his wisdom, he sent Jesus to live and die in our place and for our sin. That's God's wisdom. And so God's justice was satisfied at the cross. Theologians refer to this as Jesus' passive obedience, meaning his substitutionary penalty-bearing work in our place on the cross. And so God's righteous demands as found in his law were met on our behalf by Jesus through his perfect sinless life. And theologians refer to this as his active obedience, meaning he obeyed the law perfectly on our behalf. And that's all the wisdom of God. Christ crucified for sinners. The wisdom of God, which is foolishness to the world, is the message of the cross. It's the power of God for salvation. So, Satan can accuse us all he wants, but none of his accusations will ever stick. As someone has said, Satan knows my name, but calls me by my sin. Jesus knows my sin, but calls me by my name. And that's what it means To be justified. To be declared righteous. John Calvin said justification is the principal hinge by which religion is supported and the sum of all piety. Whenever the knowledge of justification is taken away, the glory of Christ is extinguished, religion abolished, the church destroyed, and the hope of salvation utterly overthrown. And I think the Apostle Paul would agree wholeheartedly with John Calvin here. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone, is the hinge of Christianity. If it goes, everything goes. And we are all lost, and we are all doomed to hell. And that's why Martin Luther said this, Every week I preach justification by faith to my people because every week they forget it. We forget this, don't we? We forget that we are justified. And we begin to feel like accusation, Satan's accusations do stick. That we can still somehow fall under condemnation. And when we do that, <clears throat> we are forgetting the attributes of God. Forgetting who he is. We are forgetting that God is just. Forgetting that Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension actually satisfied his justice. Listen, Christian. You are righteous in a righteous God's eyes. In a holy God's eyes. Right now. No matter what kind of week you had, no matter what you do, no matter how you feel, no matter what you think, there is no condemnation and there never will be. There will never be a moment, Christian, that you will ever experience condemnation from God. You will never be condemned for your sin or publicly embarrassed by it in the Lord's presence. 
So understand this, and this is something that you may may need to get into your bloodstream this morning. When you believed and you were justified by faith in Jesus, that was God's final judgment on your sin. Justification is God's final judgment on your sin because when God declares you righteous, he imputes the righteousness of Christ to your account. That is his final judgment on your sin. It's his final say about your sin, which means you are forgiven, acquitted, clean, pure, and righteous in God's eyes. And that means that you are as righteous before God right now as Jesus is. Think about that. Let that sink in for a moment. For those who are in Christ, united to him by faith, we are as righteous before God as Jesus is. Not because of us, right? Duh. But because of Jesus. You don't believe me? What does John say in 1 John four seventeen? By this is love perfected with us. So that, get this phrase, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. <laughs> Think about that. Confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. John is saying that we are as righteous before God right now as Jesus is. That's incredible. We can actually have confidence for the day of judgment because Jesus is not bringing up our sins at the final judgment. Martin Luther said only the devil brings up forgiven sin. So Jesus is not bringing your sins up when he sees you. Gospel means what? Good news. If your sins are being brought up by Jesus on the last day when you stand before him, then that's not good news, is it? God will judge all men and their hearts will be laid bare. But for the Christian, the final judgment will be a day of good news. It will be good news because Jesus is not playing a movie of our lives for the whole world to see. Now, the sins of the ungodly, the unrighteous, will be remembered afresh, and they will give account to a just and righteous God. But for those who are in Christ, our sins, not a word. They have been thrown into the sea of forgetfulness. So we will stand before Jesus absolutely justified. That means that believers can have confidence and we will be comforted on that day. And it will be a day of rejoicing because he has redeemed us from all of our sins. That's what Paul is getting at here in Romans chapter 8. We are justified because God is just. Because Jesus satisfied God's justice against our sins. So, Is Jesus bringing up your sins when you stand before him, Christian? No. Thank God, no. Some of you, because I told you some of you are really bad, some of you should say, thank God he's not. This is your moment to say that. I told you some of y'all are really bad. Is Jesus playing a movie of your life for everyone to see, Christian? Thank God, no. No. What a terrible way to start eternity. 
That would be awful. Who wants to see a movie of their entire life shown for everyone to see? Who wants to have your words and your actions and your thoughts and your motives shown on a screen for the watching world to see? Not me, especially a movie of my life this past week. I told y'all I was bad. As a kid, I was frightened by this idea. I really thought it was going to happen. I thought every person in the world would watch this long, drawn-out movie of my life watching me sin over and over and over and over again. It was awful how I was plagued with this thought for so long. But what a terrible way to start eternity. It would be hard to enter into the joy of the Lord after seeing a movie of our lives played for the watching world, wouldn't it? Now, of course, Jesus is all-knowing. He's omniscient. We've talked about that in this series. He knows your sins. He could tell you exactly how many times you have sinned on any particular day of your life. But if you're in union with Christ, connected to him by faith, then God dealt with your sins at the cross. Jesus offered himself up once and for all for your sins at the cross. So when Jesus was condemned on the cross for your sins, you were condemned with him in that moment. When he died, you died. God judged your sins at the cross, Christian. There's not coming a day where he's going to pull the books out and say, let's see how you measured up. When you stand before him, they're going to pull the books out and it's going to say, this one, not guilty, enter into the joy of your master. When Jesus was condemned on the cross, you were condemned with him because God judged your sins at the cross. And so when you believed and you were justified by faith in Jesus, that was God's final judgment on your sin. Justification because you're looking back to the cross, being united to Christ, is God's final judgment on your sin. That's why Paul says here that no one can bring a charge against us. We cannot be condemned for our sins because Jesus died, and when he died, we died with him. So when Jesus returns, he's not coming to deal with our sin. He's already dealt with that at the cross. He's coming to save us to save those who are eagerly awaiting him, as the preacher of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9, 27 to 28. Most people know the first part of this verse, but they don't know the last part. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, we all know that one, right? It's appointed for man to die once. We know that. And after that comes the judgment. We know that part, don't we? We need to keep reading the rest of the verse. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We will be there at the final judgment. We will be included in the final judgment. But Jesus is not bringing up our sins what will happen is we will be publicly vindicated. We will hear the words, not guilty. We will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And we will be acquitted at the final judgment. And so acquittal, our acquittal as God's people, lies at the heart of justification. So there's a positive side to the final judgment for believers. 
And that's the point Paul makes in Romans 2. And he says, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Notice the word gospel again. It means good news. If your sins and all your dirty secrets are being brought up by Jesus on the last day, Christian, then that's not good news. Yes, God will judge all men and their hearts will be laid bare and they will give account for their sins. But for the Christian, for those who are in union with Christ, it will be a day of good news. It will not be a terrifying experience for us, but rather a rewarding one. A day full of celebration, a party. We will see the wrath that we are spared from. And no, it's only by grace alone. And that will only deepen and increase our happiness and joy. And we'll just be in awe. And we'll just worship this God who in his wisdom sent his son to die for sinners. We'll just be in awe. So, justified Christian, cheer up. You're far more sinful than you could ever imagine. But cheer up because you're far more loved than you could ever dream. And so on that final day, when we stand before Jesus, we'll look at one another. And first we'll be like, I can't believe we made it. We're here. You're here? You're here? That guy's here? We're just going to be like, oh my gosh, wow. We really were more sinful than we could have ever imagined. And we really are more loved than we could have ever dreamed. It will be like your birthday and Christmas morning and Easter all crammed into what all those emotions and affections and feelings when we hear not guilty, when we hear well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. All of those feelings we will experience. We will, like Isaiah says, leap like calves from the stalls. And we'll enter into eternity full of cheer because Jesus is our substitute. And the penalty of sin and the wrath that should have been ours was placed on him instead. And so God's holiness and God's righteousness and God's justice were satisfied at the cross when Jesus died. And the really big theological word for this is propitiation. It means that Jesus satisfied the penalty for our sin by bearing on the cross the wrath of God that we deserve. So as I said earlier, the cross of Jesus is where we see the convergence of God's love and his righteousness, his wisdom, his justice, his wrath. Matthew Barrett says this, then why is Paul so ecstatic? It is because the just God has not compromised his holy character by passing over sins, but has put forward his own son as a propitiation. He has not given grace at the expense of his righteousness, but his righteousness itself has produced grace. Christ is the perfect sacrifice, the holy substitute whose spilled blood satisfies divine justice itself. The cross is the way, the only way. God can remain righteous and just yet legitimately justify guilty sinners like you and me. At the cross, justice and mercy kiss. For God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
Wrath, judgment, punishment, that doesn't sound very loving, some may say. I beg to differ. It is the most loving act there has ever been. Calvary is the greatest display of God's holy love we will ever see. As the Mandalorian says, this is the way. The bloody, gory death of Jesus is the most loving act there has ever been. It's the greatest display of God's holy love. But how do we go as sinners from being under the wrath of God as lost people, rebels, united to Adam? How do we go from that to becoming children of God, adopted into his family? What changes? Does God change from wrath to grace when we turn to Jesus by faith? Because earlier in this series, if you recall, we saw that God is immutable, which means that God does not change. So what happens in salvation when someone turns to Christ? We change. God doesn't change. God doesn't change from wrath to love because God is immutable. He doesn't change, but we do. Now, I know in Western evangelical Christianity, you have probably heard that God changes from wrath to love. But as we saw months or weeks ago, he is immutable. He does not, he cannot change. He's immutable. And he is just, perfectly just. So when a sinner comes into contact, if you will, with God's perfect justice... God's perfect justice does what? It condemns the sinner. All that God's justice can do in that scenario is condemn the sinner because the sinner does not measure up to the perfect standard of God's holy law. It would actually be unjust for God to say to a sinner, well, you're not that bad. You're not really a sinner. It's okay, I'll let this slide. God is just, and that means that he will not let anyone slide. No one is getting off the hook. No one is getting away with anything. All must give account and come face to face with God's perfect justice. So when God's perfect justice comes into contact, if you will, with a sinner, it must condemn that sinner. It will not relent And this expression of God's perfect justice we call God's wrath. And it's always there until one turns to Jesus. So we can't turn it off. We can't buy God off. He doesn't work like that because he is just. He is perfectly just and you cannot change that about him. Every sinner born into this world is under wrath because God is just. His perfect justice condemns one and all. But the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus' death takes away our sins and we are imputed and credited with the righteousness of Jesus so that we can stand in the presence of a perfectly just, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy God. So God doesn't change in this scenario. We do. We are no longer guilty. We are now righteous. And that same perfect justice of God, when a righteous person who is united to Christ, when they approach God's justice, what does God's justice do? 
What does God's perfect justice do when it encounters a righteous person? It approves of that person. When we, justified and forgiven sinners, stand before God, what will God's justice do? It will approve of us because we are united to his son. And that's why we can have confidence for the day of judgment. Because when we stand before a just and holy God, his justice will approve of us because we are united to his son Jesus. That will not be the case for unbelievers. They will be condemned, eternally condemned to hell. So what happens then is salvation is that we are changed. We move from wrath to grace. We have changed. Our sins have been forgiven. And the righteousness of Christ has been credited to us. And so now we are justified. We changed, but God remained the same. And because God is just, he will never let anyone off the hook. And people who are trapped in Adam's sin and united to Adam, they must be changed. They are wicked and they must become not wicked. They are rebels and they must become not a rebel in order to be able to draw near to God. And that only happens when one places their faith in Jesus Christ. So our salvation does not depend on God changing relative to us, but God changing us relative to him. Let me say that again. Our salvation does not depend on God changing relative to us, but God changing us relative to him, relative to his justice, his righteousness, his holiness. Because God is immutable and because he doesn't change and since he is without passions, he doesn't move from being wrathful and angry with me to becoming suddenly loving and merciful because he doesn't change and he is without passions. He doesn't undergo emotional change as if pre-salvation he is angry and then post-salvation he has suddenly been transformed and he's kind and loving. No. God does not undergo emotional change like that. We saw that in our series on God's impassibility. He is without passions. God does not undergo emotional change where once he was mad at us and now he's not. We go from being under his wrath to being enveloped in his perpetual favor and unabated delight. We change. And God's anger then is his perfect and unrelenting justice against sin and sinners and against the wicked. He is just, mankind is sinful, and that makes his justice unstoppable. It makes his justice inescapable. And so God's justice will never let anyone get away. But because he is love, he has made a way possible. His grace is free for all who come to him. And because he is perfectly just, if you come to him by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, there is no way he will ever turn you away. He will justify you. He will forgive your sins. He will declare you righteous because he is just. As long as a person remains in their sins, they will be eternally damned, eternally punished. But as long as a person comes to faith in Christ, they will be eternally blessed, forgiven, 
and justified. Okay, back to Romans 8. Look at verse 36. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors to him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So where do you experience the inseparable love of God that Paul is describing here in Romans 8? What's the proof that God loves us, that God is love? He's not just loving, God is love. It's who he is. All that God is, is love. You find it at the cross. But notice in verse 37 that God's love is in the past tense. Paul says, through him who loved us. Why is God's love mentioned in the past tense? Because I don't know about you, but when I'm suffering or when I'm listening to the voices of condemnation and accusation, when I'm experiencing tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and danger and sword and all these other Romans 8-like conditions that Paul lists here, in that moment, I want to know that God loves me in the here and now, in the present. I want to know his love. I want to feel his love now as I go through all these things that Paul mentions. So maybe Paul should have said, through him who loves us, present tense, as we suffer. We might be tempted to say that. But there's a reason why Paul describes God's love in the past tense. And yes, of course, God loves us in the present tense as we suffer. Paul is not saying that God only loved us in the past because he tells us that nothing can separate us from God's love right now because God is love. But why does Paul put God's love in the past? The reason why... Paul speaks of God's love in the past tense is because this is the summit of God's love. The highest point of God's love is not what he's doing in our lives right now. It's not the prayers that he's answering right now, though that's wonderful that he does that. The highest point and the apex and the pinnacle and the summit of God's love is not what he's doing now. It's what he did for us in the past at the cross when Jesus suffered and died for us and for our sins and for our salvation. That means then that to experience God's love in the present, you have to climb the summit of his love in the past at the cross. Do you want to see and know and feel God's love for you right now? Then you have to get to the cross. You get to the cross because that is where you see the love of God on full display. And that's why nothing can separate us from the love of God Because God's forever love was shown at the cross in the past. Charles Spurgeon said, after 10,000 sins, he loves you as infinitely as ever. Isn't that grand? Isn't that good? It's so good, I want to read it again, okay? And for some of you really bad people, this is good news. After 10,000 sins, he loves you as infinitely as ever. I know I've met the 10,000 quota in this quote, and yet he still loves me as infinitely as ever. That's what the cross secured for us. Therefore, justified Christian, cheer up, 
because you are far more sinful than you could ever imagine. But cheer up, because you are far more loved than you could ever dream. Ray Ortland says, For us sinners, God is both high-voltage danger and overflowing salvation. And the only refuge from his holy wrath is his holy love in Christ, our substitute on the altar of his cross. Let me ask you this morning, have you found refuge from God's holy wrath in Christ? Have you turned to Christ to be saved? You can today, right now. You just say, Jesus, save me. Jesus, I I need you. Jesus, forgive me. I want to be safe. I want to be justified. I believe you lived and died and rose for me. You can come to Jesus. You just have to pry open those prideful hands that don't want to admit that you really are bad. But if you can come to him with the empty hands of faith and say, I'm bringing nothing, none of my good works. I'm not a good person, Jesus. I'm a bad person. I'm bringing nothing but my faith and trust in you bringing nothing but my sin, you will be saved. The cross is where we see God's justice and his mercy come together. The cross is where God's justice and mercy kiss. It's where they smooch, if you will. As Psalm 85.10 says, Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. That's a description of what happened at the cross. Commenting on this verse, Ralph Erskine, who was a pastor pastor who lived in the 1700s, he said this, it was a bloody kiss. Christ was, as it were, bruised between their lips that the blood might cement and glue them together. They met together on a sea of blood. On the cross, Jesus was bruised and crushed, if you will, between the lips of God's justice and God's mercy as they kissed. He was in the middle, crushed. They smooched, and when they did, Jesus was crushed between their lips, and his blood poured out. And so his blood has glued God's justice and his mercy together. His blood has cemented God's righteousness and peace together. And that's worth celebrating today, isn't it? So cheer up, y'all. Jesus loves sinners, really bad ones, like you and like me. Even when they sin over 10,000 times. Let's pray. Jesus, what a merciful, gracious Savior you are. We are just in awe that you would pay the penalty for our sins. We have sinned repeatedly, and you are so merciful and gracious to us. And we're just overwhelmed right now, Jesus, that your blood was shed. And in that moment, God, Jesus, your, your blood glued God's justice and mercy together. And We will never be condemned because of you, because of your grace. And so we want to say that you and you alone are worthy this morning, Jesus. No one else is. No one else could break the seal. No one else could stand up and raise their hands and say, I'm a good person. 
I am righteous. It's you and you alone. And you and you alone are who we worship. May you be glorified in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.